Hey there, Sandy and Nora fans. Nora here. We just finished a long weekend and we tried, we tried, we tried to find a time to record and Sandy and I just couldn't make it happen. Our schedules were too chaotic. And so this week you're getting an episode of 30 Wood, the podcast that I host for Fernwood Publishing. This is a conversation between me and Pam Palmiter. I'm sure you will enjoy. Talk next week. This is 30 Wood, a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. In this episode, I talk with Pam Palmiter. Pam is Mi'kmaq, a lawyer and professor and chair of Indigenous governance at Toronto Metropolitan University and is just such a delight, so full of energy and does so many things. She talks about her two books that she's published with Fernwood, but not just that, also how to reach people through podcasting, videos and TikToks, writing long-form articles, short-form articles. It's a fun conversation and I know that you're going to love it. Pam Palmiter, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I am pumped to be on a Fernwood podcast. <laughs> yes, and people should know that Fernwood is new to the podcasting world, but I don't think it's the last time that they're going to enter this space. And so folks love the podcasts that Fernwood have put out so far. You should definitely let them know. Pam, can you introduce yourself to anyone that might not be familiar with your work or maybe familiar with only some of your work? Sure. Quay Nindeloisi Pampometer. I'm from the sovereign Mi'kmaq Nation on unceded Mi'kma'ki, which is in Atlantic Canada. My home reserve is Ugbeganjig, which is Eel River Bar First Nation. I have been a lawyer in good standing for 23 years. I am a professor and chair of Indigenous Governance at Toronto Metropolitan University, which used to be Ryerson University. Um, and I do a bunch of other things. I'm an author. I'm an activist. I write books, Fernwood books in particular, and I do a lot of um, social media content like for educational purposes. So I have like two podcasts, YouTube channel, you know, all the normal stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think you're one of the few people that I'm talking to on this podcast that has such a breadth of media that they work with. And while we're, you know, obviously we're going to talk about books. That's uh, that's why that's why we're here. But what do you? What's your feeling about moving from one medium to the next? Like, how do you interact with podcasting versus video versus long form book writing versus maybe shorter articles? Well, for me, all of this work is about public education, so that I can inspire people who are educated on Indigenous issues to take substantive action and make that a lifelong commitment. So in order to do that, I have to get to people to where they are. Obviously, in class, it's a small number of students. Obviously, when I'm in the media, some people only watch CBC or not CTV or independent, you name it. And similarly, I do lots of public speaking engagements, but not everybody's going to be there or can be there. So I know in the podcast world, that's a certain demographic. It's a certain age demographic, educational background demographic, whereas 
if I want to reach, you know, native people all over Canada and the US, Facebook is the number one, right? Like everybody's mm -hmm. on Facebook there. So what I do for Facebook is different than YouTube. YouTube is literally for a worldwide audience. And I have to, obviously, you have to target a specific audience, but it's accessible in a way that not everything else is. So if you think about YouTube, it's visual. But for anyone who has uh, vision problems, they can listen to a podcast. Anyone who has uh, listening issues can read captions on a YouTube video. So it's really for me about making everything I do accessible to the most amount of people in the most accessible and respectful ways possible. I imagine that you've come to this approach through activism and working with people and trying to figure out what clicks. At what point were you realizing that the work that you were doing in communities or the work you were doing with the law needed to have a different forum, like a podcast or a book? Well, you know what? It was actually my kids. Uh, my kids, I call them kids. They're 29 and 30 now, but um, it was actually them. They were the ones who were pushing me to get into social media. You know, I was old school. I didn't even have a computer in high school, um, but they were watching me do so many public speaking events uh, on the media all the time. And they said, mom, you know, the vast majority of youth are on this particular platform. And mom, you know, there's some people who don't listen to any of that. They only do podcasts when they're working out of the gym or cooking in the kitchen. And then there's others who are into the YouTube craze or Snapchat or Instagram lives or TikToks. Uh, short form content. So they said, don't just pick one, do it all. I know it's a little bit counterintuitive because to become an expert on something, you should really focus. But they convinced me that if I want to reach as many people as possible, I have to go to where they are. And not everyone's going to be in university or in school. Some people can't afford that. But most people have access to some kind of internet format. Not everybody, but uh, most. And so I'm just trying to reach them all where they're at. And it has made a phenomenal difference because I get everyone's feedback, good and bad, and what they want to hear more about. And comments like, oh, I wish I had known this because then I could have signed the petition to support that. So it's really... Social media is mobilizing, even more so than, you know, educational. And I think it's educational, but it's also mobilizing and community and connecting everybody together. Yes, I do love that. Um, you have published two books with Fernwood. The first one was called Indigenous Nationhood, Empowering Grassroots Citizens. It came out in 2015, which was a pretty interesting time around Indigenous activism. Um, Idle Nor More, of course, had, had, had come and is, was, had national level of recognition and consciousness. Tell me a bit about the process of writing that book. What, what, what convinced you that you should do that? How did that project come to be? And how do you look back at it now? Ooh, seven years, I guess, later, eight years later. My goodness. Oh, yeah. oh, my goodness. Well, in fact, it didn't start out as a book. I have a blog called Indigenous Nationhood. I'm changing it to the Warrior Life blog, obviously, but it's it was originally Indigenous Nationhood. And I started that, oh, gosh, 2009-ish or so, because I was seeing that Indigenous issues being covered in the media 
were at best a one minute answer with no context, or they would always go to the same people, always an elected official or a head of an organization or something, and didn't have any nuance. So I thought, well, I'm just going to write about what's in the news and share it with people, my analysis and my take on it, and primarily used it as like a warning mechanism. Here's the things that aren't being considered. If we support this, here's the dangers of it. And out of that blog, came media interviews. And so out of those media interviews came requests for more blogs. And so I just started writing on everything. And during the Harper era, oh my gosh, it was one of the worst ever. Um, And so writing was even more important because it was accessing a larger audience, but it was also available to anybody anytime. It's like it lives on the internet. And so Mm. I had a conversation with Fernwood about what if I put together a best of, like here's the best of my blogs on in, in thematic areas that someone could sit and read for five minutes, like not big, long academic chapters with tons of citations and quotes and everything else, but here's the quick and dirty. People can read it, you know, one in five minutes. People could go through a whole chapter in an hour, that kind of thing, really, really accessible. And so that's how that came about. And Fernwood, of course, who supports Native activists and women activists, Black activists, like basically anything activism and voice and diversity, that's what Fernwood does. So I kind of had a thought that they would be supportive, but they were just 100% on board. They're like, let's do this. And yeah, that's how it came about. Wow. Um, When you're blogging and developing your analysis, do you find that you're like constantly refining and evolving or is it more like you are noticing gaps within the analysis and you want to fill the gap with with what you think needs to be said or is it a combination of the two well it it usually evolves like so when I publish a blog or in fact an opt-ed in any of the newspapers or magazines usually comes from a place of anger like extreme anger and frustration Mm -hmm. uh, about a certain issue. So it's being covered in a terrible way, or it's not being covered, or there's something really urgent we need to address. So I take that anger, and it usually results in me like going on a massive writing spree, you know, maybe writing three or four opt-eds and a blog and some kind of script for my podcast or YouTube. And so it just comes out boom like that from a place of anger because I want to channel it for good. And then that's what happens. And then over time, I look at what's really resonating with people. Is it the shorter form? Is it a much longer, more detailed form? And I just go by feedback from the people who actually read these things. And now that I know that media reads it and follows it, then I use it strategically, kind of like a hint, hint, here's something you might want to cover. Mm-hmm. Now, five years after that, of course, you published Warrior Life. Um, how was that book different and similar to the to the earlier one? Well, in format, it was very much the same. So the best of blogs and op-eds that I've done. So we kind of mixed the two because sometimes I wasn't able to blog because I was writing so many op-eds. So we were like, okay, let's capture the best in this era. So the format is the same. The best of, you know, 
short form writing that I was doing on indigenous issues. But the key difference is the very first book was the reason why I was called empowering grassroots citizens is because it stemmed from my blog, which was I felt disempowered. I felt like I wasn't listened to. I felt like we needed to exercise our voice and speak out about things even if it's things that are happening in our own communities, you know? And so I thought, well, listen, this is really about empowering us to use our voices in this way during like a horrific Harper era. The other book, it naturally had to be an evolution. So it had to be more about empowering what's the next step. So once you use your voice or once you're educated on issues, then what? So the next book was really about, you know, Indigenous resistance and resurgence, activism, what is it that we need to do? What are the calls to action by Indigenous and other people? And of course, it was in the Trudeau era. Mm. So part of what Fernwood and I talked about was, let's, uh, let's compare these two. The first one was the Harper era. The second one was the Trudeau era. Lots of stuff that are different. But there was an unfortunate similarity between the two. There's core things that don't change mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to government in terms of their failure to act on our human rights or land rights or treaty rights. They all kind of want to dance around the edges. So there, there was a natural evolution in the focus of that second book into the action part. I, I have to ask then in 2025, are we going to see uh, another analysis come out? That's a really good question. And you know, I didn't even think about it until you just mentioned <laughs> it right now, because you know how you get bogged down with life and podcasts and YouTubes and everything else, TikToks. Uh, I never even thought about that or the amount of time that's gone by. I feel like yeah. there's this wrinkle in time, the whole three years of the pandemic. It's like, I, I didn't even realize three years went by. So yeah, maybe so. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm actually curious about um, the world that you released Warrior Life into. Uh, it was a pandemic mm. book, right? And I also <laughs> had a pandemic book that year. How did you how did you find when you published it the world that it then was put into? How how did the world world changed in those kind of months of of 2020? Well, um, we knew that there wasn't going to be, at least for the you know first three years life of my book, there wasn't going to be a book tour. There wasn't going to be massive speaking events, mm. there wasn't going to be engagements at libraries, going into schools, doing all of that stuff, you know, because at first people didn't even know what to do. So they did nothing like, you know, it slowly migrated to online. But by then, like people, you know, publishers even weren't really sure how to how do you promote a book when you can't do it in person, like the old school style. And I think yeah. a lot of publishers really, really struggled with that. I'm lucky in the sense that um, I, I create content, I produce content, so I could do some engagements, some special shows, you know, with other books and things like that. But really, there was a, a drastic difference between my very first book, for example, you know, Beyond Blood with Purich, which is now UBC Press, and then my two, my, you know, Indigenous Nationhood, and then this one. So it's it's uh, it wasn't as widespread, obviously, as it would be had it not been the pandemic. One of the things that I'm always interested in is the interplay between activists writing and the movements in which they're embedded. How did where Indigenous movements for sovereignty and civil rights uh, where they were in 2020 
how was that different than when you were writing in 2015 or, or even years earlier than that? I think ultimately our goals, our advocacy, our calls to action, the things that we want, our defending, pursuing have been fundamentally the same, you know, 200 years ago to now we're talking about, please don't kill us. And how about land back? And how about you live up to your treaties, those kinds of things. But in terms of social movements, social movements naturally have to change because governments adapt, media adapts, your counter movement people adapt in terms of their, you know, strategies and things like that. So it's one of those things, it's so organic. It's not like it's planned, like, aha, today we're going to switch and do this kind of advocacy. I think it really does move with uh, technology. It moves with formats. It moves with what what is uh, resonating. It even changes with things like social media algorithms. Uh, how are you going to get even more access? But I think it also has changed naturally because of social media and the way that we can coordinate and strategize and do debriefings and feedbacks and, you know, kind of do like a football review of what worked and what didn't work in that particular scenario. (laughs) And that's social media is priceless for that. I know there's a lot of garbage on social media, but if you're strategic about it and you just use it for your purposes you're, you don't have to engage with all the trolls. That's a waste of time. But you can set up a Facebook meeting or a Zoom meeting or something and say, okay, how are we going to do this? And uh, it's really brought most of us together. And I think there has been a transition from like when I started when I was like a teenager to now. Our movements are less isolated, less siloed, less all about us and our one issue and more about where can we collaborate and cross over to support and strengthen our movements because it just makes our movements collectively bigger. And we found better ways to work out disagreements in the family, you know, and with any relationship, there's going to be disagreements and we just have to find ways to work around that. And I think that, you know, we've come a long way to do that. What, uh, when you look at movements today, what gives you optimism and what gives you pessimism? I guess maybe answer in the opposite direction so you can end with the optimism. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Pessimism. Um, It's that I I worry that some people give up too quickly. I worry that they measure success tied to themselves as in if I don't see this court case win in the next two years you know it's all over with Mm. because I fought this court case I lost this court case oh it's all done instead of seeing the win in it you know that court case took two years they couldn't do any construction during those two years those two years gave us time to do more research plan our advocacy plan b we knew it was always going to lose but now we've been given the time to plan around it Um, because, you know, so much of what they do is like instantaneous and without our consent. So it it does worry me that people give up too quickly and don't see the successes. Mm. What gives me hope, however, is seeing people on the front lines. That has not changed. We are still on the front lines. We are still fighting. We are still, you know, defending ourselves against the police. We're still living, asserting and defending our sovereignty and protecting water and protecting kids and You know, we're just becoming more and more unified into, you know, politics don't seem to matter as much anymore. It's more about, do you care about human beings? 
do you care about life on the planet? Great. Then we're going to be fantastic friends. And as long as I see people on the ground and in the media and fighting in courts and fighting at the UN and fighting off on every forum, then we got this. The, the devastating thing would be to wake up tomorrow and no one really cares. Right. They all just gave up. Right. Of course. Thinking about where you are today and the projects you're working on and where you want to go, and then looking back over the writing you've done, how would you say you've evolved as a writer? That's a really good question. Um, I've adapted my writing. So in the in the very beginning, it was more kind of like a, a personal reaction to stuff. It was always based on fact, right? But it was really changing from the academic format of publishing for a journal, publishing for an editor, you know, for work purposes. So you can check it off and say, great, I've done this for my tenure. Cause that's a very different purpose to making time, forcing time to write for the struggle. And that is more short form. It's less academic. It's accessible in terms of age, in terms of educational background, in terms of, you know, finances it and over time because of the feedback that i've gotten i've been able to adjust my writing to what people care about because i can go and talk uh, i don't know give a talk at a school about treaty rights but if all of their questions are related to hey what what's going to happen if pierre polyev gets elected what's that going to mean for indigenous rights and i'm like okay not only do I have to talk about the legality of treaty rights, now I have to talk about the context in which it lives, the political context and the differences in which treaties have been treat, you know, treated and what people can do to help if that happens. So it's feedback has been really transformed what I've what I've done. Um, you know, there's been some commentary about be less strident, be less angry, be less direct. You know, can't you soften some of the things you say? But how do you soften genocide? I mean, honest to goodness, it's not the weather. I can't soften it. It's it, So I still have to be direct. And I think the core of who I am and what I'm saying is the same. I've just tried to respond to how people receive it and and the things that they care about around that topic. And how do people receive it? How do you find people receive your your writing, uh, the book writing or the blog writing or or even your your podcasting and YouTube uh, work? It's I'd say the majority is good. And what's interesting, you know, now that I've been doing it long enough is the majority is good. They always say thank you or I didn't know that or I can't wait to bring this back to my First Nation and raise it with chief and council or it's a chief saying wow, this is great. I'm going to talk about this with my counsel. Like, so that the fact that it's been useful and that they can take it into consideration, like, do you support the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples? Yes or no? Well, here's things to consider. Here's some myth busting around it. That's really helpful when people are doing their own analysis. And so I really like that. There are, you know, I would say maybe... 15% uh, that aren't supportive, but because they're political in the sense of, you know, oh, you're just overly dramatic. You're just a liberal. You're just a Trudeau liberal. Mm. Or, 
you're just a Stephen Harper plant. So I get it on both sides. You know, you're trying to convince us to support UNDRIP because you're just a plant for the conservatives. <laughs> so literally right. all these political parties are trying to critique what I'm doing on, on a political level and not actually on what I've said, not on the facts or the reports or anything. And then, you know, like anybody, there is, uh, uh, I'd say about 5%, depending on the topic, who are almost all men who are vile and disgusting and make threats and say things that have nothing to do with what I'm talking about. And those are the ones that I don't mm. respond to. I don't add fuel to the fire. And I noticed over time that if I talk about pipelines or white supremacy, then the majority of comments I'll get are all vile and disgusting and threatening. So when I say it's like topic based, th th those are some of the exceptions. Mm. Yeah, they certainly seem to have uh, like a bat signal go out whenever they see someone writing about white supremacy yeah. in pipelines. And it's like, must, <laughs> must swarm, must be there right now. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> One of the questions that I'm asking everyone who's participating in this podcast, and it's perhaps an obvious question, but I think it's important for us to reflect on it. Why is radical publishing so important? I think it's so important to de-radicalize it in the sense of people think that talking about human rights is radical. They think that us talking about not having pipelines is radical or protecting the earth. So it's been categorized by other people as this radical, disruptive, terrible, it would just ruin everything kind of literature. When if you've got more and more publishers publishing the voices of people who are talking about really important things that's going to save human beings and the planet in the future and normalize it. So basically normalizing what they think is radical is the counter to them normalizing racism, violence, oppression, you know, uh, capitalism, those kinds of things. So that's why I think it's important, not so much because we're radical, but we're radical to some people. Let's just make it normal. Let's make it what kids read in schools and universities. And we talk about on a regular basis, then it's normal. Then it's like, oh, human rights. Yeah, of course. Why wouldn't we have human rights? We don't want people to die or be harmed, of course. And then it's less radical. Right, of course. And also, you know, obviously, these these publishers and Fernwood in particular create these incredible communities of, uh, of writers and creators and activists that uh, that can find each other kind of like indirectly through their work. And then you realize, oh, my God, we're all actually like kind of on the same page and cool. Yes, I know. <laughs> and the other thing is that no one person can know everything about everything. So even though I have four university degrees in Indigenous issues and law and studied it and teach it and work it and life experience and all that stuff, I still can never know everything about Cree people or everything about Haida or Wet'suwet'en or Navajo or anything else. So thank goodness I don't have to do the work of doing the research and compiling it. Someone else is going to do Cree stuff. I can do Mi'kmaq stuff. And through that, because I'm an avid book reader, obviously, maybe not obviously, but then, you know, it brings us together so I can have a better understanding of Cree people or Black Lives Matter and what it is that they want. You know, I can't just assume it. And so mm. it's it's the educating yourself in a fulsome way about all of the issues that we're facing. And then also, you know, when people ask, oh, I want to know more about Black Lives Matter. Can you come speak about it? And I can say, well, 
not me, but maybe you could go talk to Elle Jones because Elle Jones is mm. dynamic and fantastic. And she even has a book. Here's a link to her book. So it's also another way of uh, maybe I can't uh, work on Black Lives Matter right now. Maybe I can't attend the protest and I try to attend as many as I can or pay enough attention to it right now because I'm doing Indigenous. There's still a way to support it behind the scenes. And for anybody who may have missed it, um, I had a conversation with Elle Jones and Lynn Jones in the same episode. And so people should look back in the archives of this podcast to catch that episode. Pam, I have now a set of rapid fire questions. Nice. And they are fun and I'm excited to hear what you think. The first question is a fake question because it's actually two questions. What is your favorite place to read and what is your favorite place to write? Oh, my favorite place to read is definitely in my bed with whichever number of dogs that we have at the moment. That's like <laughs> the best. You cannot get better. That's like literally heaven. My favorite place to write, unfortunately, is my office desk because that's where uh, Mission Central is. I've got three computer monitors. I've got all of these things that can hold books open and research reports. And I really like my computer. It's an Alienware computer. And uh, love the tick, tick, tick of my, you know, uh, computer keyboard, uh, which is better than, you know, say trying to work on my laptop. It's just not the same. Here's where I'm focused. It's like, you know, the war zone here. Yeah. I mean, I just listening to you say you have something to hold a book open. I mean, I, that sounds yeah. awesome. <laughs> I need that. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> what, um, what books do you have on your to read pile right now? Oh my gosh, my to read pile are basically old books. So uh, one is about We Were Not the Savages, but the very first edition, I want to reread it and compare it to his latest version, right? Because I have all four versions. Ah. But you know, when you've read something a long time ago, you kind of forget. So I really want to understand his growth over time and what he's seen and what's different. Uh -huh. I mean, I know we've talked about it, but that would be pretty pretty amazing to me and then the other one is this where is that book uh I just got it from the I just got it from Amazon it's a really ancient book that you can't find anywhere and you know if you go on Amazon or bookstores or wherever and you can sometimes get a used book mm -hmm. I can't think of the title of it though but I thought it was in my bedroom or my office here anyway maybe not but it's a old 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 book Awesome. Because again, there's lessons to be learned from old things, right? What were the struggles back then? What are they now? How do we advocate differently? All mm. of that stuff. So even if it's from 1950s or 60s, that's gold to me. Yeah, I, I have not inserted what I've got on my to read list, but I feel like I have to right now because I, I'm almost finished the character of class consciousness in Canada from 1987. Oh. <laughs> and it's so great. I know my students sometimes say, hey, why do you have this on our reading book list? Like, this is from the 1980s. It's so um, not relevant anymore. And it's like, oh, man, in Native politics, you want to believe it's relevant because it's so much to learn. Like, I just did a, you know, a forward for another book about a Native leader who was, you know, doing this stuff years ago. And the thing I like most about it is how upon him reflecting on his first edition, 
all of the things that have changed and things that he, they they left out and didn't mean to. Like think of all the times in the old days, most of these politicians were men. So they talk about men and not they don't celebrate the women. And so this book celebrated the women. But this old one that I just got is called As Long as the Sun Shines and Water Flows, a reader in Canadian Native Studies. So I'm thinking, wow, it's going to be really interesting to see what they were teaching a long, long time ago, because this one was from 1983. And, and how that might have impacted thinking. Totally. Oh, that's so exciting. And I, I hope that you will create content about that at some point. Oh, yeah. yeah I've got a long list of things I want to write about. Oh, awesome. Well, you know, everyone should, uh, should, should pay t- close attention to, uh, to your blog on that one. Do you have a ritual that prepares you to write? Okay, so here's the thing about me. I cannot, like, put in my calendar every day from, I don't know, 9 to 10 a.m., I'm going to write something because my brain just cannot do that. I have to be really angry or really impassioned about something to write. And then when I do write, it could be like two weeks straight. That's all I do. I don't talk to anybody else. It's really feast or famine. Mm. And I've tried to be like some of my colleagues who literally put it in their schedule. Oh, every day between this hour and this hour, I'm going to write. No. The only exception to that is if something is happening in the media that I haven't heard about and someone asked me to do an opt-ed and then I read it and then get really angry about it. And it's like, okay, now I'm going to have to write right. right now, no matter what. But for the most part, I can't force it. It just, it is... What are you doing these days for fun? Well, I ride my motorcycles, which two of them are dual sports, which means, you know, I can drive the bigger one cross country or I can uh, drive them on trails. And it's just so awesome. It's so much fun. I do that with my son. Um, I do archery with my son. And that's a lot of fun because I'm trying to be like Legolas from Lord of the Rings and I'm not very good at it, but it's a lot of fun. And I just like, you know, anything that's not in my office. So it could be going for a walk with my puppy. It could be motorcycling. It could be mountain biking. And pretty soon my grandbaby's going to be born in March. So I guarantee, oh, in wow. addition to hanging out with my puppy, playing with my grandbaby is probably going to be the number one thing for fun. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. What is a book that had changed your life or had a big impact on you? Ooh, that's a good question. I try to surround myself with those books. Um, it has to be We Were Not the Savages because, you know, you don't really get into book, book, books, like those kind of books until you're in university. Like before then, you know, I read different kinds of books, but We Were Not the Savages because it, Danny, Danny Paul, the author, really defended us. It was like the first book I ever read where he was like our defender. So society blames us for everything. You know, we're dangerous, we're savage, we don't take care of ourselves, blah, blah, blah. Danny turned that all on on its head and said, yo, we were not the savages, you were. And look at what you did. And you should point the finger at you and look at what we did. We were good, we were kind, we were, you know resilient. We were all these wonderful things. 
And that just, I don't know, I felt like it just took this load off of my back because growing up, you know, people make fun of you for being native and call you all these names and you're never going to get it. Even teachers, you know, you're never going to get anywhere, this and that. Uh, but he was like, no, um, you're wonderful. We're wonderful. Our people are wonderful and I will defend you. And um, I think that's still the most impactful book ever from that kind of genre. Wow. And and also, of course, we did. I did have a conversation with Danny Paul about We Were Not the Savages and how his thinking has evolved and how that book has evolved. And so another plug to listeners, yes. if you haven't listened to that episode yet, you absolutely should. My last question for you is, who is someone you look up to? Oh, my gosh. Do you have two hours? So let me start. <laughs> Dr. Cindy Blackstock, <laughs> who's a Gixan woman, an advocate. She has been able to move mountains on justice for First Nation kids and care and their families. She's my hero because she's not elected. She's not a member of like those political parties. She doesn't sell out. Similarly, uh, Dr. Sharon McIver, she has been a champion for getting rid of sex discrimination in the Indian Act so that Native women and their kids can belong to their communities again. And she's directly impacted me. I'm registered as in, you know, part of my First Nation and my kids are because of the work she did. She's not a part of any government. She wasn't elected. She did this on her own. So really individual activists. So same with former Senator Sandra Lovelace Nicholas from Tobik First Nation. She basically had the first case that went to the United Nations on non-discrimination against Indigenous women and girls. Kanahus Manual, who stands on the literally on the front lines trying to stop Trans Mountain Pipeline. Molly Wickham, who's on the front lines for Wet'suwet'en, trying to stop Coastal Gasling Pipeline. You know, Cheryl Maloney, she was able to orchestrate and stop Alton Gas, contaminating the water in which our fish live. Like, you know, they, these are individuals who put these situations and issues on the map and they kick ass and take names and get stuff done in ways that no political organization or advocacy organization has done. And so it's really these individual champions that are getting more work done. And of course, on the, you know, guy side of things, there's always people like um, former Senator Murray Sinclair, who has spent his life working on every possible Native issue possible and educating the public and really changing the rhetoric. You know, like that's that's foundational. It's phenomenal. Or people like Donald Marshall, he's Mi'kmaq. He was able to, you know, as an individual with support, obviously, bring the courts to its knees on our treaty rights to fish. So it's really about all my heroes are these individual powerhouses that dedicate their lives, but they get stuff done. And it's a very different scenario from organizations, political advocacy or otherwise, who are putting in funding submissions and doing meetings with government and MOUs and everything that just doesn't move the marker. Where can people find your work? Where are you at on TikTok and YouTube and, of course, your previous books? Yeah, okay. So the easiest route to take is to go to my website. It's called pampalmeter.com. Easy peasy. You Google it, you're going to find it. On pampalmeter.com, you're going to find my YouTube channel, 
my Warrior Life podcast, celebrating the voices of Indigenous activists. You're going to find my Warrior Kids podcast in case you want your kids to learn about all of this stuff too. You'll find my blog there. You'll find every opt-ed and news article I have ever written. Uh, and even if they're for subscription type organ um, magazines or something, I always get them to agree to open access. So you can access like everything there, obviously all of my academic stuff, but uh, there, there isn't anything that I do uh, and there isn't anything you can't Google. You Google Pam Palmiter TikTok, that's going to come up. Pam Palmiter Facebook, it's going to come up, but, but you don't have to search. It's all linked on my website. So it's a one-stop shop. That is awesome. Thank you for making it easy for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Pam, it's been such a delight. Thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, I'm so pumped. And I can't wait to listen to all the other authors you talk to because I am also their number one fans. <laughs> You've been listening to my conversation with Pam Palmiter as part of the 30 Wood podcast series. Episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to check back to hear your favorite Fernwood authors. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. 30 Wood is a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Check out Harbinger's radical left-wing podcasts at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your favorite episodes. Pisces years old, lo and behold, a fortress of magnitude. They can't subdue, liberation is radical. You're telling me my dreams have to be practical when all these global systems are tyrannical. Point of view, more than two.